So there I was, six years old, and it was Christmas time. Now, I don't know about you, but how, on a scale of one to 10, how into Christmas is your family? Okay, pretty into it. My family was 11. Like, if there's the Griswold family, there's the Volkmer family. Like, we are that house on the block. And you know, imagine like 1950s light bulbs because the normal ones from Walmart aren't good enough. So nostalgia light bulbs. We're talking about every area of the house has lights, even the dangerous parts. You guys, you know what I'm talking about. The time when you're out on the ladder and you're worried about your life insurance policy. That kind of uh, decorations. And the front of the house was, you know, those plywood cutouts of Santa and the reindeer, and even Rudolph's nose had a big, bright red bulb. We're talking Christmas of Christmas. Every ounce of the house was area, every square inch decorated, cookies for days. Uh, You know, we got Nat King Cole on the radio from Thanksgiving 24-7, silver bells. I mean, we're talking about the whole thing, the plates, not just normal plates that you eat on, we're talking about Christmas plates, not normal salt shakers, we're talking about Christmas salt shakers, pepper shakers, you people are crazy. And so that's the kind of atmosphere I grew up in. We're talking about not just cookies for Santa. No, 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 not, that's not good enough. He needs a glass of milk, and there needs to be carrots for the reindeer. That's the kind of, uh, so imagine my little six-year-old heart just filled with this holiday rapture. Like, I'm getting to the point where the, the presents under the tree are exponentially getting greater. It's like they're reproducing like rabbits under the tree, and I'm getting more excited and more excited, and and my dad is stoking the fires, literally, no, like he would check the fireplace and was, boys, be extra good, because this is where St. Nick comes, right down the chimney, you boys been good, and I'm like, my little, like, middle, you know, I was a middle child, so I was like, I was always the good one anyway, and so I was like, oh yeah, I've been good, and watch out, boys, because the elf is watching, so it gets to this piece, like this paranoid psychosis of expectation all the way leading to this one day, this one monumental day, and on Christmas Eve, who could sleep? Who could sleep? I'm waiting there in bed, tucked in with enough adrenaline to play a football game, and I'm just laying there, and, I, and, and it's like late at night, and I hear the... Which obviously, obviously in my six-year-old mind is St. Nick on the roof and the reindeer and the sleigh bells and and cookies. And this is the moment. So I creep out of bed. And I turn and I was upstairs looking down at the Christmas tree. And that's when I saw it. Mom and dad putting presents under the tree. And I sat down and I cried. It's always dangerous when something's fake. It's always dangerous when something's fake. And some of you are like, how dare you ruin the spirit of Christmas? I say to you, tie your shoelaces because we're about to get into the word of God. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be looking, not at the story of Christmas, but we're going to be looking, looking at where the rabbi starts addressing the fake ones. 
We're going to be looking at when the rabbi begins to look at all the religious trappings, all of the religious ceremonies, the pomp and circumstance of Jerusalem with all of their wealth and their decadence and all of their robes and their phylacteries and their traditions of men and all their religious history, but the rabbi comes in with red hot words. The rabbi comes in and he starts telling parables. With anyone with any kind of common sense understands that there are now layers and accusations and and, and accusatory language. There's now, he's insinuating that now that there's a bankruptness and a barrenness and a corruption now with the religious elite. It was at this moment that the rabbi began to speak in parables. Turn with me in the Bible to Matthew in the 13th chapter as we continue our sermon series on the book of the king, the book of the kingdom, and the book of King Jesus, this gospel according to Matthew. We are in the 13th chapter. A little context here. It's in this chapter which Jesus says that if you don't understand this teaching, you don't understand any of my teaching. Men, We're not gonna be going over that teaching, but it's your responsibility to teach this to your family this week. I want all the men, all the fathers, to teach the parable of the sower to your wife and to your children. It's your responsibility. But we're going to be looking at verses, starting in verse 18 and continuing. Excuse me, verse 10. And the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak in parables? The rabbi is speaking in parables. Why don't you speak plainly? Why are you speaking in parables? He answered and said to him, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, so that they do not understand. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, hearing you will hear and not understand. Seeing you will see, yet you will not perceive, for the hearts of the people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes are closed, lest they be able to see and lest they should be able to understand with their hearts in turn so that I shouldn't heal them. But blessed are your eyes. Blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For surely I say to you that many prophets, many righteous men, they desire to see what you see and to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. When I was a young Christian, this was an interesting passage to me. Do you ever have questions with the text? Do you ever just go, what in the world? You're supposed to, people. You're supposed to struggle with the text. You're supposed to wrestle with the text. You're supposed to be so entrenched with the word of God that it's supposed to bring bring questions in your mind. You're not supposed to just live on this surface level understanding where you get your hallmark verse of the day and call it a day. That's not it, folks. We're to wrestle with the text. I remember as a young Christian when I understood, I was like, whoa, wait a second. Jesus doesn't want people to understand. 
That's the text. Jesus, they said, Rabbi, Rabbi, why do you speak in parables? And Jesus says, oh, so that they don't get it. Come again, teacher? I didn't understand. Oh, that's the point. The rabbi doesn't want them to understand. Have you ever wondered why he doesn't want them to see? He doesn't want them to hear. But wait a second, Jesus. I thought we were supposed to be about mass communication of truth. You know, we're supposed to get the truth out there. People are supposed to hear. Like, as a preacher, this was a questionable text for me. I'm like, come again? You know, like, we don't want to get the message out. We don't want people to understand. We don't want people to see. That's why you're speaking in, in, in puzzles and mysteries and riddles and parables. That's why you're speaking this way. And he's like, yes. So that by seeing, they don't see and hearing, they don't hear. So that I don't heal them. And that was a big question for me. So much so that I remember exactly where I was when God revealed the answer. I was at the HEB line, kindly and respectfully saying, I need more receipt because I was writing out the answer on the back of it. You ever been there? Has God ever revealed something to you and it's like you know, you're in a dangerous situation where you're like, I have to pull over now. I can't be doing what I'm doing right now. You ever been written on the wall of your house and your wife's like, why are you writing on the paint? God speaks. Do you wrestle with the text? Rabbi, why do you speak so that they do not get it? And this is what God revealed. He spoke in parables because he's merciful. Because he understood the kingdom principle to much is given, much is required. And when you know something, when you know that you know that you know something, when it's revelation to you, it always affects your will. But the reason that Jesus spoke in parables was to protect the people. It was an act of his mercy because he spoke in parables because of the calloused hearts. He spoke in parables because of the indifferent. He spoke in parables so that the drunk man who has no desire for the things of God can walk by and go, oh, he's just speaking about fish. Good fish, bad fish. And he can go about his day. He spoke in parables so that the religious person can just go, oh, he's speaking about Samaritans. I have no dealings with this man. He spoke in parables as an act of mercy because too much is given, much is required. He's not speaking to the calloused, to the indifferent. He's speaking to those who have a desire for truth who will press in, what is he saying? What's this mean? Now in us, in our Western minds, in our academic settings, we want everything up front. We want the, the purpose of the email to be at the start of the email, in the subject, and at the end, in case we weren't paying attention. That's how we work. We want everything up front. What is this about? Are you selling me something? We, we don't like mystery. We don't like suspense. And we have no understanding of the rabbinical mind of way, the way that they teach. They teach in layers. They don't just give you the answer from the, the Bible says it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the wisdom of kings to search it out. So you have to understand Jesus was a rabbi and he taught in rabbinical fashion. That means there's layers of 
eisegesis, there's layers of interpretation, there's surface layers, and then you get down from the Peshat into the Remez, and then from the Remez you get into the Pardes, and then you get into the Sod, and some of you are like, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the layers of rabbinical eisegesis, and if I can get in the weeds, this sermon is literally called the wheat in the weeds. So I'm gonna get in the weeds, is that okay? You have to understand, we have because we're Western and we just think surface level. But Jesus, as a rabbi, is inviting us in to, to take the text as a treasure and to dig and to mine and, and to see that, wait a second, that's a reference to something else. So when Jesus is telling a parable and he makes a statement that refers back to a statement that Jeremiah made, Jesus is saying, hey, pay attention to what Jeremiah said without saying, hey, Jeremiah said this. You see this? He's giving hints. He's telling us to search and to, and to go to the text like it's a treasure. And I'm so scared. I'm so scared because I see Westerners and they treat this as a have to. I have to read my Bible. You've missed it. You've missed it. This is a treasure. You get to. And I'm scared with sometimes people, they gloat about, well, I have my Bible. I'm going to read the whole Bible through in a year. Oh, be very careful. Yes, I believe we should read our Bibles but you should read them slowly and obediently. Slowly and obediently. Because to be honest, sometimes I read half a page and I say, I can't handle what I just read. God looks to those who tremble at his word. The reason we're setting all of this up is because I don't want you to have just a superficial understanding of the word of God. I want you to see it as a mine. I want you to see it like a, a, a storehouse of treasure. Jesus says a teacher of the law brings forth treasure, both new and old. It is a treasure, folks. I found rubies and diamonds in here. It is a mine. It was the mercy of God for him to speak in parables so that the careless, the indifferent, the sinful, the wicked would have no desire, but those whose consciences were pricked by the word, those with a desire for the truth, those for a hunger for the things of the kingdom, they would press in and find the great meaning of the text. Now, with this understanding that the word is like a gym, that you would hold up to the light and you would turn it and see a different facet of the beauty and majesty of God. This is the rabbinical understanding of the law, is that it is so beautiful and so majestic. You remember when you were a kid with a kaleidoscope? Yeah. I don't know about you, I was a simple kid. I would take a kaleidoscope and I would just stare at it and spin it for hours. And you notice you never got to the end of the facets of the beauty. It just always was something new. So is the word of God with a clean conscience and a pure heart. You just read it and all of a sudden you're seeing something you never saw before. Now with that mindset, let us look to the text 
of the parable of the wheat and the tares that we might see something we never saw before. In verse 24, and another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while he slept, his enemy came in and sowed tares. Now, tares is an old word we don't use anymore. It means weeds, weeds. Think like dandelions, things that are not profitable, things that you can't eat. He sowed weeds among the wheat and he went his way. But when the grain had sprouted up and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How does it have tares? He said to him, an enemy has done this. An enemy has done this. An enemy has done this. The servant said, do you want us to then gather them up? But he said, no, because if you gather up the tares, you will also uproot the wheat with it. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the weeds and bind them in bundles to burn them in the fire, but gather the wheat into my barn. Lord Jesus, we pray that our eyes of our understanding would be open to the knowledge of you. We pray that our ears would be open to receive your word and to understand with all confidence and all assurity that there is a harvest, that there will one day be a gathering in which you will separate the wheat from the weeds, that you will bring that as a reality to our heart and to our conscience right now by the power of your Holy Spirit that one day there will be a great separation, a separation between good fish and bad fish, between wheat and tares, between sheep and goats, that God that you from the very beginning have separated the light from the darkness and you are still doing it in this moment. We pray that our hearts would understand that you have eyes like flames of fire and able to see both the motivations of our hearts. And yet in all of this, God, you offer the good seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all men that if we would repent and believe, we would be born again. Amen and amen. Now this is what's interesting is that the wheat and the weeds, they look exactly alike. It's so difficult. Only the very, very trained eye would be able to determine what is a wheat and what is a wheat. Go ahead, try it out for yourself. Can you determine what's what? We have a picture here. Which which one is it? They're so close, folks. Now imagine you're having a whole field of this, a whole crop of this, where you have wheat and you have weeds. You have, and what's interesting is specifically the, the weed, you know what it's called? Bastard wheat. Fatherless wheat. I find that so interesting that the weed doesn't know what his father is, who his father is. I, I don't wonder if that's just a... Uh, just a uh, 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 coincidence, but they say the rabbis say coincidence is not a kosher word. 
But you have this concept where they look exactly the same on the outside, but there's one distinguishing factor between the weed and between the wheat. Do you know what it is? The wheat is able to feed people. The wheat is able to provide nutrients and life and sustenance to others, where in fact, the weed, actually, its root system draws off the wheat. So now we have this story of a field with two crops growing. One crop is like a parasite taking the nutrients from the good crop. Now let's put it into our context. I'm terrified when I hear Americans in their Christianity, they say things like, I'm so glad it's Sunday so I can get fed. So that I can get fed. Oh Lord, that is, I caution you, I warn you that could be an indication that you are a weed in a wheat field. Vibrant, true Christianity, you're not waiting for Sunday to be fed. You have such an extravagant, dynamic love life with Jesus. You can't help but talk about him. You can't help but share about him. You're not waiting. I'm speaking of mature, someone who's been around a while. You're not waiting to be fed. You're feeding others constantly, habitually. You are a well springing up of everlasting water, giving thirsty people drinks all around you. That's the real, but there's the real and there's the fake. There's the wheat and there's the weed. And I'm afraid people talk about, this has been a really interesting year to be a pastor. A whole bunch of things have happened. We've had pandemics and we've had plagues and then we've had politics and our capital was stormed. And the whole time I'm making a post on Facebook, then deleting it, making a post on Facebook, then deleting it, and then we just, this whole thing happened, then the race riots, and then the don't you care, aren't you woke, and I'm like, I don't know, I didn't know I was asleep, and it's just like this whole thing, and one year feels like 10 years, and all of these threats that are coming to the church, I tell you right now, the greatest threat to the church in America is false conversion. The greatest threat to the church in America is that weeds think they're wheat. How do we know? How do we know? Now, I notice in our culture, we examine everything. Before we buy a car, we want the Carfax. We want to know if it's been in a wreck. Before we buy a home, we get an inspection and pay money for someone that to inspect our homes. Before you came to church, you probably looked at our Google review. You know, you want to go to the restaurant. You want the Yelp. You want to know on the front end. We inspect everything in our culture. We examine everything in our culture except ourselves, except for our souls, the most valuable thing, the most important thing. The Bible says, let every man examine himself, whether he be in the faith. Let every woman examine herself, whether he be in the faith. Examine yourselves. Let this be a period of self-examination. Am I a weed? Am I a wheat? What is the marks? What is the marks of the genuine? You love him. 
You trust him. The marks of the counterfeit. As you're trying to make a deal with him. You're trying to get something from him. You're afraid of what's coming. The genuine, the wheat, they obey God because they just love him for who he is. They don't have to. They want to. If you could simplify it, the genuine want to and the counterfeit have to. Is it possible to look extremely outwardly religious and still be inwardly off? Is it possible to have a form of godliness but deny its power? That outwardly you look fine, you serve, you give, you even lead a small group, you might even be in ministry. Everything looks right outwardly but inwardly. You're always trying to do a deal with God. Your motivations are not for God and his highest good, but inwardly for yourself. So you serve to be seen. You give to be known. And you make deals with God. I'm so grateful that there's hope for a religious heart. Jesus looks at Nicodemus Someone who's outwardly perfectly religious, who had the law memorized, the Torah memorized, the prophets he had memorized. He was a teacher in the Sanhedrin. He was respected. He was known. He was venerated and honored. But Jesus looks right at him and says, you must be born again. You must be born again. It is possible to be outwardly religious, but the inwardly dead. I'm so grateful that when Jesus saw the outward religious Saul of Tarsus, who was concerning the law blameless, who was uh, of the tribe of Benjamin, who was a Levite of Levites that had every pedigree, every accomplishment. He, had, he, he was president of the PTA. He was president of the Rotary and the Chamber of Commerce. He would have been the mayor of the town, and yet... You must be born again. All the works of your hands will by no means justify you. You cannot get in by what you have done. Everyone must kneel. Everyone must surrender. Is it possible to look outwardly perfect and be inwardly dead? What is the evidence of the wheat of being born again. First John, the Bible tells us, we know that he that does righteousness is born of God. We know that him that doeth good is born of him. The scriptures tell us again, we know that he that is born of God keeps himself from the wicked one. We know that he that is born of God does not sin. Now hold on a second, Kyle. You said that don't sin. The counterfeit keeps on sinning because he does not really hate sin. He hates only the punishment of sin. The true child of God is more afraid of sin than punishment. Many people, they don't want to go to hell, and so that's the reason they serve God. It's not solely because they love God for who he is. You see that? You're trying to make a deal with him. Come to him for who he is, not for what he can do for you. 
You see, the inherent motivation is still selfishness. It's just religious selfishness. It's still for your own preservation. The kingdom of God is not in threat or bribe. It's love and trust, trusting him for who he is, not making deals with him. A counterfeit says, if I do this, what will happen to me? The wheat says, how can I sin against my God? Paul tells us, put away the former behavior, the old man, which is rotting before you. With its desires of deceptions, being renewed in the spirit of your mind, put on the new man, which is created to conform to God in righteousness and holiness and in truth. Nowhere are we called to accept Jesus or ask Jesus into our hearts. It's not language of the Bible. We are called to repent and surrender and to be born again. The greatest threat to our nation is not in politics or in party. It's not in racial issues or economic issues. The greatest threat is that the church, which is the salt of the earth, would lose its saltiness. The greatest threat is that the light, the light which is the light of the world would be put under a a basket and be hidden. Let your light shine before men. I speak to you as someone who just wants to be with Jesus. I think that's the mark, that's the evidence of the genuine is is you just love Jesus, you love him and you trust him. You're not trying to make a deal with him, you're not doing those late night prayers after a day full of sin in which you try to once again consecrate yourself to God, you're not doing that. You're saying I love you and I trust you and where you are I wanna be. You don't have to obey, you want to. You don't have to serve, you get to. It's a privilege to know him, it's a privilege to serve him. I want us to think, all of us together in a heart of examination. The Bible says many times, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. David prayed, God, see if there be any wickedness in me. Search me, O God, and know me. You have to remember that the eyes of the Lord are beholding the whole earth. He sees the evil and the good. Don't play religious games where you think that God doesn't really see you. His eyes are flaming fire. They are flaming fire. Fire. He knows the secrets of men. He knows every thought, every motivation. He knows everything you've hidden, every word you've ever said. He knows why you do the things you do and who you do them for. And yet he stretched forth a pierced hand. And he offers friendship. He's seen everything you've done. He's seen it all. And yet he stretches forth a hand of friendship. Put away the former behavior. Put away the old man with its rotting desires of deception. 
Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Be conformed to God in righteousness and truth. Stand with me now as a church. You know, our culture is right now has been taught about viruses and inoculations more than ever. And so now you know, when you have an inoculation, you can't get the real virus. And the greatest threat, I think, to the gospel in our country is many people have a weaker form of the gospel that's not the real gospel. And when the real gospel comes in, they say, I already have that, I'm good. Today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts as in the days of rebellion. Today, if you will hear his voice. Today, Jesus offers the pierced hand of friendship to whoever will repent. That means change your mind. You might be completely outward religious and you might have an entire history and the voice of the enemy will speak to you right now and will say this, well, you've served for this many years and you've done this and you've been on this committee and, and look at all the things that you've done. No, by the works of the hands, no flesh is justified. We all come on our knees with empty hands and surrender to the Lord. It's not by the works of righteousness that, that you will be accepted, but by his great kindness, by the mercy of God extended to man once in time and time again. Today, if you will hear his voice, you might ask, well, what do I do? Your words have been like an arrow in my heart. I know that I'm a weed. Is there any hope for a weed? The answer is the good seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ that would go into a repentant and obedient heart. That the gospel is the incorruptible seed of the word of the living God and it's able to save your soul. Allow the gospel, the truth of the reality of that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and that he gave his life and his blood that man would be brought near and that you could be saved. If you find yourself as a weed this morning, but you don't wanna be, if you find your mo this morning when you examine the motivations of your life, they were inherently selfish and inherently me and they, and they were trapped with all religious language. But now, in the presence of all, you would say, I surrender. No more religion, no more outward. I want the inward, I want the real, I want the genuine, I want to be the good crop, I want to be the wheat. I'm tired of having a form of godliness but denying his power right now in this moment. With everyone present, I pray that you would say, I want this, I want the genuine, I want to repent and believe and trust, and you would raise your hand in the presence of all. You would raise it up and keep it up because you're not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God on salvation. You would say, Jesus, save me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. We have small group leaders and leaders that are gonna come alongside and counsel you. We have a starting line where you can receive the very copy of the treasure, the word of God yourself. But we would say all of us, the answer for all of us right now is self-examination. Let a man examine himself. Just put your hands out in a posture of receiving from the Lord Jesus. Jesus has a church all around the room. Come on, just press into God. God, search me. Search me, search me, God. I don't want to be religious, I want it to be real. 
God, I don't want to just go through the motions. I need a touch from you. Where should I go from your presence, God? God, forgive me of formalities. Forgive me of being dry. Forgive me for just going through the motions and doing things for what I thought was the right reasons. Let my life be about you and you alone. For you and you alone, I simply love you. And I simply trust you and I'm not simply love you. And I simply trust you and I'm not trying to make a deal with you.